church family. Hey, how are you? It's great to see you this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, take it and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. And if you have a copy of God's Word in print, which I strongly encourage you to bring to church with you, I want you to find the 12th verse. If you have a device on your phone, perhaps use a Bible app. That will be sufficient as well this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'd like to preach to you from verse 12 down through the 23rd verse. This is the second to last sermon in a sermon series we've entitled Freely Bound. After next week, where we will deal with the 24th and the 25th and the 26th and the 27th verse, we'll pause and in December we'll focus our thoughts and our hearts in God's Word around the Advent and then right after the new year, we'll pick right back up in chapter 10 in a new sermon series called American Idol. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we come to this installment of our series called Freely Bound. Now, I know this week, I hope, is going to be special for you. You may have a large family near you. You may have a small family near you. You may have family coming to see you. You may be planning to work a few days and then hopefully have some time on Thursday or Friday or Saturday of the end of this week to be with family, and you will celebrate Thanksgiving. And no doubt, Thanksgiving, I have always told you, is my favorite holiday because it's fellowship, it's fun, it's food, it's football uh, without all of the stress of gift buying and gift giving. And so I, I'm drawn to Thanksgiving. I enjoy it tremendously and will welcome family uh, from our home state of Alabama to come and, and to be with us. And we always rejoice in them coming and we rejoice in them leaving. But in, in Thanksgiving, what we will find is a transition will happen. And I made mention of it in the welcome, but we will begin to set our hearts toward Christmas and invariably, there are a small minority of you who will actually go shopping on Black Friday, but online shopping has virtually replaced that. And now, most vendors, most retailers are beginning, even this week, offering their early Black Friday sales. And you're beginning to think, and mom and dad are beginning to communicate, and grandparents are beginning to text and say, well, what are you going to get him or her? What are we going to get him or her? Is there a gift? that you're getting that we might get a complimentary gift to go with it and there's this family communication happening and there are some folks in your family that are tremendously difficult to buy for and there are others who will send you their Amazon wish list anytime you want and it is well stocked with things you have no intention of buying for them and one of the fun parts of being parents and grandparents in addition to what Santa may or may not choose to do is the toys that you get to relive with your children. And for a guy, for a dude, it's always the ones that are big and loud and that move. I remember the little plastic four-wheelers with the battery and the charge cord you cannot find after 36 months of owning the little uh, four-wheeler. And they made little blue ones and red ones and pink ones for our children, our girls and boys. And then 
they got bigger and there were SUVs and Tonka trucks and Jeeps and, and then they graduated to gasoline-powered locomotion and there were four-wheelers and I got into the dirt bikes for a while, but I'm not a small engine mechanic and I got tired of that. So one day, literally one day, I sold three dirt bikes. That day, they came home broken hard. I'm like, I'm done with it. I sold them. I took the money and bought one ATV for us all to use. And so I've been through those phases and we talk about this in our home. Laurel and I raised two boys in our 20s, and we were young and passionate, and we didn't have a lot of wisdom. Then we raised two in our 30s, a boy and a girl, and I feel like we've done better. Now we're raising two more in our 40s, and we're just done. We're just tired. We're just tired. And, and, and in doing that, it does remind me to think about what we had. I never got a plastic toy with decals on it. I had one of these. Do you remember these? I was born in the late 70s and did my growing up in the 80s. This is when we strapped our children on go-karts with nothing, no brakes, no gears, no helmet, no elbow pad, no knee pad, no seat belt, a kitchen chair for a cushion, and you had to be on it before your dad pulled the cord he choked that baby down and pulled that cord, and it was moving before he let go. Now, I remember I had one of these little go-karts, and my grandfather was attempting to teach me to drive it. I did not understand the idea of speed and stomping and turning. And so he tied a little rope to the back uh, of it, and it was so small and so light, he could literally pick it up, and the tire that was connected to the little Briggs and Stratton uh, motor engine would come off the ground, and when the tire doesn't touch the ground, it doesn't go. And so I remember being in my grandparents' yard and him jogging the best he could as a grandfather as I learned to drive this thing, and I begged, please take the rope off, please take the rope off, and finally he took the rope off, and I no sooner took off out through the pasture, turned a hard right into a ditch, flipped off the thing, busted my head. Being free is not always the greatest good to pursue. We fight to be free. We don't want anybody to control us. We want to be free. And yet, honestly, freedom is not always the greatest good. There are times in our lives where the Lord, on a much more serious note, far more serious than the playing with toys, reminds us that there's something better than freedom. In fact, that's the title of the message today, Better Than Freedom. Now, if you're visiting with us today, you are not familiar with this series, but this has been a series where we've explored how do we balance spiritual freedom in Christ, because we celebrate that. We know that Christ sets us free from sin, sets us free from condemnation, free from the fear of death, free from an eternity in hell, and he welcomes us into his kingdom, not as paupers, not as slaves, but as sons and daughters of God. And because of that, we're set free from any religious ritualism that is put on us by human minds and human hearts to attempt to earn our way to God. We do not earn the love of God. We do not earn our salvation. We do not earn our place in heaven. It is not based on our own merit. It is, as the reformers said, 
unmerited favor, in his kindness and his grace, he extends to us the free offer of salvation. So when you step from death to life, when you become a born-again Christian, when you receive Christ and you trust him, you are forgiven of your sins, you are sealed forever as a part of God's kingdom. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You're given the presence of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee and a guide. And then the rest of your earthly life is spent where Christ in you and the word over you and the church around you helps you conform more fully to what God has already declared you to be, which is a blood-bought saint, a sinner saved by Grace. So we are people who sing of freedom, preach of freedom, celebrate freedom. But we are not people who demand our spiritual freedom in all situations. In fact, just the opposite. When we come in contact with folks who may find some behavior in our life, something we prohibit in our life, something we permit in our life to be a stumbling block to them and we're faced with a choice, what do we do? We freely bound ourselves to make the gospel first and foremost. Now, there are lots of examples of this. We've talked about this in the weeks past. If you're new to the series, you can catch up. It's all available online on any platform. You can hear a sermon. They're all there. But there are many issues within the Christian life that are considered gray. Now, what we believe about Christ and who we know we are in him and the truth of his word are black and white issues. The matter has been settled. It is the assurance of our salvation that gives us the confidence to worship. But in those gray areas where we encounter someone who may have a different set of priorities, a different set of principles, a a different set of passions, and we're trying to engage our life with their life, we are allowed to freely bind ourselves to choose to give up a right we may have in order that they may see the love of Christ in us. And specifically, in this case study, which is what 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is, Paul chose to give up a very specific right as an apostle. Paul had the right to be compensated to do ministry. He was a full-time servant of the church. He was an apostle, a church planter, a missionary, a writer, a theologian, a preacher, all balled up in one. This was what God called him to do. God commissioned him to do it. God gifted him to do it, and God released him. And the effectiveness of his ministry served as validity that truly he was a servant of God. And when God calls out men and women to serve his church vocationally, like myself and many others who serve on our church staff, it is a good thing for the church to care for them and to provide for them so that they can vocationally give themselves to the ministry of the word and the ministry of the church. This is not up for debate. It's clear in scripture. But in Corinth, there were so many people who were taking advantage of others. There were so many spiritual charlatans who were abusing this power. When Paul came to Corinth, he decided, you know what? I'm not going to be paid. I'm going to make my own living tent making. I'm going to use my own trade so none of you can have me in your pocket. So I can be free to say and to do what God has called me to do. And in the defense of this choice, what Paul ultimately argues is 
There's something better than me choosing to exercise my right as an apostle to be paid. And the first 12 verses of chapter 9 is the justification for compensating men and women who serve the Lord. We dealt with that last week. But now we get to the good part, the juicy part. The part where Paul says, now let me tell you why fully acknowledging this right exists. Fully acknowledging that I am able, willing, and deserving of you taking care of me financially, Paul would say, I'm not going to receive payment. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me find with you the second part of chapter, or verse 12 of chapter 9. I'll begin at the beginning of the verse. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? That's actually the conclusion of the above thought. The verse break here is not where it really ought to be. You do know that the chapters and the numbers are only about 300 years old. Paul didn't write chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. He just wrote a letter, and then later people inserted the chapters and the verses, numbers, so we could study the Bible, so I could take you to a verse and a place. And sometimes they break perfectly, and sometimes they don't. But in the second part of the verse, nevertheless, so this is where Paul's saying, now let me stop and change directions. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. I've already explained to you what the right was, the right to be paid. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. If I had to press this whole sermon into one phrase, it's the second part of verse 12. Paul's saying, I'm not going to receive money. With that decision, I'm going to struggle. I'll have to work extra. I'm going to endure some pain and struggle and sorrow that I might not have to endure. And I'm doing this because I don't want to be an obstacle for the gospel going to your life. All that's really, really important. Now, it's interesting that right after he says that, he mentions, verse 13 and 14, why even though he's making this choice, he is not saying every man or woman of God who's called to serve the church should make this choice, which is why verse 13 says this. I'll read it. Read it with me silently as I read aloud. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share the sacrificial offerings? That's an Old Testament reference. Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. So Paul's saying, I made a personal choice. It is a choice I've chosen to make, but it is a choice that not every minister needs to make. And it is a good thing, both in the Old Testament pattern and in the New Testament affirmation of the Lord Jesus, that men and women who serve the church vocationally are called to an honorable duty and the church should care for them. And as I told you last week, and I went extra the extra mile in telling you, because you are so gracious, you are a great example of a church who cares well for your staff. But then we pick back up in verse 15. This is where it gets good. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? 
that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so that so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. When Paul speaks of this choice, he really speaks of it in two parts. First, he unpacks his motive. What is his motive of making this choice? It's the salvation of other people. Now, this is very important. Christians make choices all the time about gray areas. Christians make choices as to whether or not they celebrate Halloween. Christians make choices as to whether or not they abstain from drinking any alcohol or they choose to drink a small amount of alcohol in moderation. Christians make choices about whether or not they think it's right or wrong to tattoo their body. Christians make choices as to whether or not they choose to take a job which may pull them away from being able to worship on Sundays and they weigh the provision that they need to offer for their family with the opportunity to work and the availability of services elsewhere. I could go on and on and on. Christians make social choices. They make political choices. They make physical choices. They make financial choices. And most of the time, there is clear teaching in the Word, all of the time, there's clear teaching in the Word about those choices in relationship to what is sinful and what is righteous. But in that gray area, we are forced to navigate and we begin to choose what is the most wise decision. What should I do in a specific situation, in a specific set of circumstances, in a specific context, when I don't see a clear right or clear wrong and I even witness Christians who are faithful to Jesus land on either side of the choice I'm making. What do I do? Before you make a decision, you have to question your motive. Because the default is that I always want to decide what to do based on what I want. You do the same thing. Now, many of you are kind and Selfless. I'm not accusing you of being a selfish group of people. But I know you because I know me. And while we like to think we're all different and diverse and unique, the human heart is the human heart. And by default, I never have to struggle to know what I want and want what I want. And neither do you. In fact, part of the Christian life is learning to want and desire what God wants above what I want. This is why the more you walk with the Lord, the more he changes your motives for what you do. It's not just behavioral modification. He gives you his heart. You begin to want what he wants and weep over what he weeps over and rejoice over what he rejoices over. And so I think it's very important that Paul chooses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to not just tell us what he chose to do. He chose not to receive compensation from Corinth. But to tell us why. What was his motive? The motive was the gospel. That's the motive. And that's incredibly simple and yet incredibly clarifying. He stopped, looked at the situation, and asked a question. In my freedom to choose to be compensated or not to be compensated, I'm speaking specifically of Paul here, what best positions me to communicate the gospel in Corinth? And by the way, what a great litmus test. What a great litmus test for areas in our life that may be gray. Before we say, well, they do this, or they don't do this, or 
he said this, or she said this, or preacher said this, or small group leader said this. Those are good people that we ought to listen to. But before we listen to any other voice, we might ought to ask, Lord, in this situation, what best puts my life in a position to make the gospel known to those around me? In fact, eight times from verse 12 down to verse 23, you know what word keeps coming up? Gospel, 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 gospel. The gospel's the greatest reason for any sacrifice in our lives. I'll tell you why. It's the only eternal reason. We make all kinds of sacrifices for other reasons, and many of them are not unrighteous. In other words, if you sacrifice eating the foods that you want to eat in order to improve your health by in eating the foods you're supposed to eat, you will help your body. It is good for you. It will not last 150 years. No matter how well you care for your body, that is a temporary goal. It honors the Lord, but it's not going to last forever. If you make sacrifices in raising your children, if you say no to certain things so you can say yes to savings account, yes to college funds, yes to providing for them a dependable vehicle, yes to making sure they receive the medical care, the sacrifices that we all make in raising children, you are doing a good thing that will impact the rest of their lives, but that's not a forever thing. They will eventually grow up. They will eventually go off and chart their own course. It is not a sacrifice that is eternal. And while those are good and noble, when we begin to really ask how we make sacrifices, the eternal motive is to tie it back to the gospel. Now, now, interestingly, in this passage, Paul speaks to the past and the present and the future. Look, Look at verse 15. Verse 15, he says, I have never received any payment from you, but I have made no use of any of these rights. So Paul said, I have not. Then he says, I am not currently. Look at the second part of verse 15. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. And then Paul uses some hyperbolic or hyperbole, if you will, language when he talks about it. For I would rather die than to deprive, he would say, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. In other words, Paul says, I I haven't received any, I'm not asking today, and I'm never going to ask. And then he begins to introduce this idea of boasting. Now, I thought we were against bragging. Actually, we're not. The Bible's not really against boasting, as long as you're boasting in the right things. Boasting can be a a really good thing. I'll give you a simple example. One of the most encouraging things you can do as a parent is drop the hammer when it comes to discipline, but also use that same set of lips to build up and praise your children when they do well, to boast on them, to, 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 to praise them for the things that they do well. I've seen many wives and husbands have their hearts so encouraged when that nonverbal husband or wife decides to discipline themselves and become more complimentary, to boast more, to to praise more, to encourage. I, I promise you this, if you learn the discipline and the art of offering warm words of encouragement to people around you, you'll never struggle with loneliness. People will be drawn to you like flies to honey. 
We live in a time when there's so much discouragement. If you find a way to build up and encourage people, I promise you people will be drawn to you and your influence in their lives will be greatly increased. Boasting in and of itself is not sinful as long as we're boasting in the right things. Now look what Paul does beginning in verse 16. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground, that gives me no ground for boasting. What's he talking about there? He's saying... If I'm forced to preach the gospel because I'm receiving a paycheck for you, from you, I got nothing to brag about. But then look at the second phrase of verse 16. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship, with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to make full use of my right in the gospel. If you pay me to do it, if it becomes a job, then I've received my reward. What is your reward in your job, your paycheck? In fact, we say when we present the gospel, for the wages of sin is death. Why do we say that? What's a wage? You remember minimum wage, don't you? You know what minimum wage is, right? Well, minimum wage is the minimum by federal law that you are allowed to pay an employee in an official job. What is a wage? A wage is an amount of money you earn in exchange for your time and your services. The wages of sin is death. Death is earned by sin. Sin earns death. Paul says, if my wage is my motive, then when you pay me, I preach. I got my reward. My reward was the payment. But that's not how it works in ministry. He says, woe to me if I do not do what God has called me to do. In other words, it seemed rather foolish for Paul to brag on the very thing he feels like God had called him to do. You ever met anybody that got their pilot's license? It's no big deal to get your pilot's license. The big thing that you have to invest is a lot of time and a lot of money because jet fuel is really, really expensive. Airplane fuel is very, very expensive. And so it takes time to pay for the lessons, and you have to log a certain amount of hours in the air in order to become a certified pilot. And so if someone in your life decides to do that, often a, a young person will try to get their pilot's license, we will congratulate them. Wow, that's great. And the day they graduate, the day they, first, they, the day they do their first solo flight, and they land the plane, and, and they're certified, and, and they reach certain status, we would congratulate them. Do you know why we would congratulate them? Because that's remarkable. Do you know why it's remarkable? Because we can't fly. <laughs> but can you imagine an eagle bragging on flying? When an eagle flies, they're just doing what they're designed to do. No eagle would land in a nest and say, did you see me fly over here? Why? It's like a fish bragging on swimming. It's like a child bragging on playing. It's like your deadbeat husband bragging on eating it and taking a nap on the couch. He's gifted at that. He's designed for it. Some of you, like me, have been given a body that's designed just for that. Paul's saying, me bragging on what God has called me to do is ridiculous. I was born to preach, Paul would say. I was born to make the gospel known. He chose me before I could choose him. He 
predestined me to do this. So then, what is my boast? Well, look what he says in verse 18. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge. Doesn't cost you anything, Corinth, to hear from me. He goes on to say, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying, my right as an apostle is not more valuable than your salvation in Christ. And in a day and age where everybody seems to always scream about their rights, how refreshing is it to meet someone who says, you know what, my rights are secondary. What is primary is making my life an instrument where the Lord's gospel can be communicated. In, o- in other words, the reward for preaching is not that the preacher be esteemed, but that people be redeemed. That's the reward. That's the greatest use. And, and by the way, don't categorize this. Don't compartmentalize this and say, well, what a great message for people who are called to preach and minister and lead the church vocationally. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 belongs to you just as much as it belongs to me. You may be a plumber. You may be in law enforcement. You may be a school teacher. You may be a realtor. You may be someone who is a design engineer. I don't know what your title is. I don't know what you do. I don't know what services you render to earn your paycheck. But according to the teachings of Scripture, the day the Lord saved you, he commissioned commissioned you to join in his forces to see the gospel known. And you and I should find our reward in boasting in the gospel. When Paul came to Corinth, the first thing he dealt with, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, we dealt with it several months ago, was spiritual arrogance. People were running around bragging on which group they belonged to, on which spiritual knowledge they supposedly had discovered. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about that? I'll remind you. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. But rather, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, and then Paul goes old school, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You want to kill your witness? Share Christ this way. Tell people how good you are. How wonderful your family is. How righteous you live. Look at people with a holier-than-thou attitude and position yourself in superiority. I I promise you, you'll be a pretty ineffective witness. You want to be an effective witness? Live righteously. Live differently. Look differently. Speak differently. But whenever asked why, boast in the Lord. Tell them you do what you do. You speak the way you speak. You say yes or no to the entertainment in your life. You make choices about gray areas, not because you live in fear of displeasing God and falling away from salvation that is theologically impossible, but rather because Christ found you, because Christ forgave you, because Christ saved you, because Christ has changed you, and because Christ realigned your mind. And by the way, in the process of doing that, Do you know what happens in your life? You become wiser. You become more able to discern the will of God. Is that not what Paul says? 
brethren, sisters, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then what? Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's not even on the screen. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You will be able to discern the will of God. Some of you find yourself in a constant state of confusion because before you got to the decision you're facing, you had not been transforming your mind through the power of God's word and his spirit. So when you get into the moment where a decision has to be made and there's no clear right or wrong and you're discerning the will of God, you come in struggling because prior to encountering the situation you have not been allowing your mind to be transformed by the renewing power of the word and the spirit working together see there's a major decision coming in your life you don't even know about but as you walk with the lord today you're getting ready to better navigate that decision tomorrow and the motive has to be the gospel. But then finally, Paul speaks to the method. As we close this passage out, look what this motive makes him do. Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all. Now that's a reference to people. He's not free from Christ. He's not free from obedience. He said, I'm not free. He said, I'm free rather from the restrictions of men. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant. You could also translate that slave. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. So Paul says, I've been free from the chains of my sin, but then I picked up a new set of chains. I freely bound myself to some stuff around me so that I might communicate the gospel. In the series Freely Bound, this is the bound part. This is the part where he gives up. This is the part where he chooses. The series is wonderful to hear, but when you go out these doors and you really do give up some stuff, you really do compromise some personal preferences in order to make the gospel known, it can be painful, which is why the motive matters. But the method matters as well, and Paul gives us a beautiful textbook of his method. Look what it says, beginning in verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became myself under the law that I might win those under the law. Now, inside of that, there's a parenthesis. Notice what he says. Though not being myself under the law. In other words, Paul's saying, I didn't go back to believing the way I believed before I got saved, but I did change the way I acted around those who believed that way so as not to offend them, so as to earn a way to speak the gospel to them. Verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Last group, verse 22. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. And then he ends with that famous passage. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its Blessing. Being saved has been such a blessing. I cannot imagine not leveraging my life to see other people come to know Christ. Three groups of people. 
those who were the Jews who were under the law. That's where Paul came from. This is the work that Paul was doing among the Jews. We know that Paul went into the circles of the Pharisees, that Paul taught in the temple. There were even examples where Paul was punished by the Sanhedrin council in the book of Acts. Paul could have walked into a Jewish circle and looked and felt and appeared and spoke very Jewish. He was a man who had spent his entire life prior to Christ obeying the law zealously or zealously in order to make sure he earned the righteousness of God. And when he saw the gospel, when he saw Christ, and he realized that Jesus did not come to replace the law, that Christianity is not a new faith, but Jesus came as the completion, the one prophesied by the Old Testament to fulfill the law, he was set free. But it did not stop him from being willing to be Jewish in Jewish situations. And then there were the Gentiles who were outside of the law. In the book of Acts, there's a discussion about how Paul was handling the Gentiles. And it said, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Now, that's not really a reference to the person Moses. Moses is also a typology of the law. When they would refer to Moses, they would refer to him as the human being most representing the law because Moses wrote the first five books of your Bible, which are called the Pentateuch, penta being the word five, like Pentagon, five-sided. Moses wrote those. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. In other words, when Paul found himself in a situation where Jewish Christians were living alongside Gentiles, he would tell the Jewish Christians the same thing he went on a journey of, which was you don't have to live by the law that Jesus has fulfilled in order to know the Jesus that the law prophesied about. And so whenever we come to a situation where God's word is clear, there's no wiggle room. Paul's not compromising on what is right and what is wrong. He's saying when he comes up against people who have different views of religion and rituals, he doesn't want to do anything that would compromise his ability to clearly communicate the gospel. And then, of course, the third group is the weak. The weak are those caught between the law. If you want an example of that, that'd be chapter 8. There were some in the church that felt like they could eat the meat that had previously been offered to sacrificial idols sacrifices idols, and some who were saying, oh, no, no, I can't eat that meat because I used to be a part of that cultic pagan practice. And Paul was navigating it, saying, theologically, you can eat the meat. The meat's the meat. The idol's the idol. It doesn't matter if you get a good deal on a rib, I get a good deal. Reverse sear that baby and go for it. But there were some who just couldn't do it, and so Paul said, even though I can do it, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to offend them and lose the opportunity to encourage that brother in the faith. In other words, that whole don't be a stumbling block issue. There's a thousand examples of this. I was thinking about a moment I had in a waiting room once. There are rooms you see in a hospital and rooms you don't see. We all know about the waiting, waiting room. It's big. There's usually really bad coffee somewhere in the corner, really old magazines that you're afraid to touch because everybody who comes through there is sick. And then there are those consultation rooms that usually aren't labeled that you get pulled into when you have to tell family the worst news. Been in many of those. Told families some terrible news. Been with uh, chaplains who serve so faithfully or nurses and physicians. 
I was there one day with an elderly lady, uh, and her husband had died. He was older, so it wasn't necessarily a shock, but it was a sudden death. And we were talking and praying together, and her daughter said, my, my son is, is on his way. And I could see that fear came over her, and she said, Pastor, I need to tell you something. What? She said, my, my son is gay, and his partner is going to come with him to the hospital. Now, this is an older lady from a different generation, and I can imagine in her mind she was worried about how I might react to that. She knows that I believe the Bible. She knows that I believe God's Word. She, she knows that. She believed what I believed. That didn't change the fact that her son was living a lifestyle different, contrary to what God's Word says is permissible. But can I just tell you that that waiting room is not the place to deal with that issue? That waiting room is the place to minister and love her. So I looked in their eye and said, I can't wait to meet your son. I'll be glad to pray with him. And when he walked in the door, I hugged him. I hugged the gentleman that came with him, and we prayed together as a family. That day was about mourning the father. That day was not about preaching against a particular lifestyle or a particular sin. That family needed to be loved. You are thrust into all kinds of situations where people have all kinds of different views. And in those moments, not every context deserves you to be prophetic. Sometimes we just love. We do not compromise. I will comfort someone who is hurting no matter what life they may be living. I will not attend their wedding. I will not pretend that a worship service or a ceremony is happening when something is totally forbidden by God, but I can be their neighbor. I can love them and be kind to them. It's the same situation with those struggling with addiction. It's the same situation with those struggling with all forms of heterosexual perversion. It's the same situation when you have someone who is hurt and hurt and hurt others around them and you're faced with a decision. Do I pick up a rock or do I pick up the gospel? And notice eight times in this passage, Paul says it's about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. This is what matters. And that's so clarifying the next time you find yourself making a choice. What do I do to make the gospel known in this situation? There you will find your answer. I didn't expect this yesterday. I expected a hard day yesterday, but I didn't expect what happened. Over in our chapel, we had the funeral service of a little six-month-old baby boy. His name is Elijah. Here's a picture of him. He belonged to some members of our church and died suddenly, unexpectedly, last week. He was faithful church attender. Here's a picture of him in the concourse. His mom and dad are so proud of him. He has a three-year-old older brother. He loved to laugh and he loved to smile. And They lived every parent's worst nightmare, put him to bed and he was perfectly healthy, checked on him a few minutes later, and he'd stopped breathing. We gathered in the chapel yesterday, and we had his service. And I'll be honest with you, there's insider information about funerals that you learn when you're in ministry, and you do it just to help people. One of those is I'm pretty leery of close family members sharing. There's two reasons for that. Number one, 
the funeral service is to honor those who've passed and to minister. And if you're not trained in how to speak in highly stressful, sensitive situations, sometimes you get up in front of people and you're in front of the light and the mic's hot and, and you can begin to struggle and, and, and it takes the service in a direction that it need not go. So when people say, I want to share about my mom or my dad or my spouse, we typically meet with them prior to and make sure we help them collect their thoughts in writing and coach them a little bit because we know they want to honor their loved one and we want to help them do that. Well, unexpected and unbeknownst to our team, Elijah's mom and dad, her name is Drew, his name is Shelby. Drew and Shelby came to me just before the service and said, we'd like to share. I'll be honest with you, a red flag went off because I didn't want this poor young couple to get up there and to struggle. But they assured me they were ready. They both showed me they had written out their thoughts. And so they asked me when to do it. I always encourage them to do it at the beginning so they're not sitting through the whole service wondering what they're going to say. Just get that out of the way. Get up there and say what you want to say. And so I opened the service, read a passage, and I invited them to come up onto the stage of our chapel. And about three minutes per person, they did the most amazing job of presenting the gospel I think I've ever heard for young parents living a nightmare of having to bury a baby. This is Shelby, Elijah's dad's handwritten notes. This is what he said at the funeral. I asked him to let me have it for a day. I'm going to give it back to him. I just want to read one sentence to you. As days go by, I know that it will be a rough road ahead. As a human, I can't help but think of the what-ifs and the void that now exists in the family. But we must be strong and know that our son is waiting for us at the finish line with open arms. The Lord still has duties for us to fulfill here on earth. But we can't wait to see Elijah again. And this is the line that caught me. Shelby, his father said, and I want to take as many people with me as I can. When our hearts are broken, the gospel brings clarity. God called that little baby boy home for reasons we understand and reasons we don't. But his father said, heaven just got sweeter for me. And now I want to live my life in such a way to take as many people with me as I can. I don't think Paul could say it any better. I do what I do that I might win more to the cause of Christ. The holiday season can be wonderful and painful, but it's going to put you with people you don't normally see. Extended family, friends, work parties, socials, neighborhood gatherings. Would you please, from the bottom of your pastor's heart, would you please begin this season with this prayer? Lord, in all of the cooking and the wrapping and the shopping and the seeing and the visiting and the card writing, would you use my life to make the gospel known to others? Speak Jesus. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the opportunity to be reminded that when we freely give up our freedom, there's something better. That we leverage our lives to speak Jesus. Everybody with a job in this room and online is going to go to work tomorrow. And there are people they work with that do not know you. That is the reason they work where they work. All of us are going to gather with friends and family. And when we do, we have family members that are precious brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we have some that are really struggling in a dark place. It may look like turkey and dressing and a Thanksgiving meal, but it is a divine opportunity to speak the truth of God's love. To speak Jesus. Even when we leave this room in a few moments and we're handed these little cards with the QR code, It'd be really easy to throw it on the table, hoping some stranger can pick it up. But what means even more is to hand deliver it to someone and say, hey, I know you've been through a lot lately. I want you to know that Christ loves you. And I'd love for you to experience Christmas with me at my church. To speak Jesus to people.